I think a lot of this was done because the government and prosecutors knew that this would be a good test case. Because if you say it's about prostitution, or especially if you say it's about sex trafficking, people are just going to say, eh, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm not going to defend it. I'm not going to look too closely at it, whatever. And it was a sort of test case. Can we can we use this sort of prosecution? Can we use this sort of political pressure to either you know amend Section 230 or go after other sorts of online companies that allow user-generated speech and, and sort of, you know, can, can can we get away with this? And and I think that, you know, we're seeing now that they, they've already moved on to doing this against companies that have nothing to do with sex because they were they were able to perfect this playbook or at least test it out with, with Backpage. The complaints against any of the classified ad website, websites, it's including Craigslist and not just Backpage, were that they facilitated not just prostitution, but also child sex trafficking. And that's the part of the allegation that is absolutely false. Uh, to begin with, Backpage had a track record of cooperating with law enforcement whenever they uh, came across information about possible trafficking, of reporting it. They also would um, respond to subpoenas within 24 hours. They would send uh, people to testify at trafficking trials around the country on the company dime. Um, and so they were probably one of the better sources, if not the best source online for combating child sex trafficking. The government didn't even try to bring a trafficking case against Backpage because they knew they had no case in that area. Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. So let's get started. Welcome back, folks, to So To Speak, the free speech podcast. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino. Really excited for today's show. There's a case that's been going through the courts for quite some time now that I imagine some of our listeners have heard about. It's the Backpage.com case. Now, for those who aren't familiar with back page or maybe only have a brief understanding of what it is. Uh, it was, I guess I should say, an online classified advertising service that was founded in 2004 by the alternative press, New Times, which was a press that was founded by Michael Lacey, who was the editor, and Jim Larkin, who's the publisher. Its name drew its inspiration from the back page of the New Times alternative print edition. Uh, which housed advertisements. Um, you can think of Backpage.com as a competitor, if not the chief competitor, to Craigslist. Uh, like Craigslist, it allowed users to post ads to categories such as personals, automotives, rentals, jobs, and most notably for this conversation, uh, adult advertisements. Uh, it quickly became very popular, second largest online classified site in the United States with over 600 million. A uh, 600 million valuation, I should say, in 2015. Um, and according to the Department of Justice, uh, they alleged that more than 90% of the site's earnings came from adult apps. Now, this is where we get to the controversy, right? Uh, the National Association of Attorney Generals has described Backpage as a hub for human trafficking, especially the trafficking of minors. Uh, in 2018, the website domain was seized by the FBI and its executives and staff were prosecuted under various charges, uh, prostitution, money laundering, and conspiracy. Uh, nobody, importantly, was charged with human trafficking. Uh, in fact, Backpage has a well-documented history of working with law enforcement to prevent human trafficking, 
on the site and has even won an award from the FBI for its collaboration to take down human trafficking. Uh, and in 2001, a jury trial on these charges was declared a mistrial, in fact, due to the fact that prosecutors continually referenced child sex trafficking, which the defendants were not accused of. Now we get to modern day, right? In November, following a mistrial and years of court proceedings, um, Michael Lacey was found guilty of international concealment money laundering. Um, he was found guilty on one of, I believe, 80 or more charges. Uh, his co-founder, sadly, Jim Larkin, committed suicide before the proceedings could begin. Uh, a number of other execs and staff were convicted of things ranging from you know, one count of conspiracy to violate the Travel Act, um, you know, 30 money laundering counts for one exec. Um, a, there was a dozen counts of facilitation of prostitution. So, you know, they were variously acquitted and found guilty of these prostitution, money laundering, and conspiracy charges. Uh, First Amendment advocates have long supported Backpage on the grounds that their site was protected by Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, as well as First Amendment principles. And advocates have been concerned that Backpage case represents a slippery slope for prosecution of protected speech and the rights of websites that host user-generated content, uh, see it as a threat to the free and open internet, um, whereas opponents and prosecutors have frequently described the site as an online brothel. So we've got three distinguished guests here with us today to kind of break all of this down. Uh, two of the guests are repeat appearances on the show. You all know Ronnie London, who is FIRE's general counsel, uh, and Bob Corner-Beer, who is FIRE's chief counsel. And in addition to being regular guests on the show and my colleagues here at FIRE, prior to coming to FIRE, they represented uh, Backpage and so are very familiar with the prosecution uh, against the website and its staff. But joining us as well is Elizabeth Nolan Brown, who is a senior editor at Reason Magazine, where she has written in depth about the Backpage case. And it's, it's the main, uh, I believe, Elizabeth, you're the main author of Reason's morning newsletter, is that correct? Uh, I was until very recently. I'm, I'm launching a new newsletter that's going to be specifically focused on sex and tech and First Amendment issues. So You heard it here first, maybe. <laughs> uh, but in 2018, Elizabeth, you wrote a profile of Backpage that dives into the history of Jim Larkin and Michael Lacey and their journalistic enterprises. Uh, I was... Uh, I learned a lot from the profile. They pissed everyone off and they had actually a unique history of defending free speech values um, in court. Uh, and then you dive into the kind of the current controversy. So, I, Elizabeth, I'd love to start with you, given that you wrote this profile. Can you tell us a little bit about the origins of New Times, Inc., which then became or it's then spun off Backpage and kind of the stories of Jim Larkin and Michael Lacey? Yeah, um, you know, I, I had started writing about about Backpage before I ever met them because I was writing about um, sex worker rights issues and also free speech and, and technology issues and controversy around Section 230. Um, but I, I had the chance to meet them briefly in, in 2017 when they were called before Congress. And then um, after, after they were arrested in 2018, um, I went out to Arizona that summer and they, they hadn't talked to any other journalists about their case yet. And um, I got to 
sit down with them over the course of several days and just hear about not only their current case, but about their whole history. And, um, you know, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't known so much about them. And when you, when you hear their story, it puts a lot more context into why they are fighting so hard in this battle. Um, they had met as, as students in Arizona in the 1960s. Um, they formed a student newspaper there that was originally uh, specifically dedicated to opposing the Vietnam War. They um, worked to sort of make it into a more robust paper that was ad supported. They said from, you know, from day one, they didn't want to be starving journalists. They, they needed a way to support the, the paper through um, advertising. So they had a lot of classified ads. They also did a lot of like arts and entertainment coverage too. But but the you know underlying ethos of their paper was sort of um, reporting on issues that the mainstream newspapers in, in Phoenix would not report on. And, um, you know, this, this continued at the Phoenix, um, Phoenix new times. And then they eventually went on to, um, you know, expand and own the Miami new times and then to own alt weekly papers in, um, more than a dozen cities across the U S and sort of everywhere they went, they, you know, their, their thing was sort of calling out the local power structures and, and sort of, you know, reporting on not chumming up to them, like a lot of, you know, the mainstream papers would for access, but sort of just like calling them out for things. Um, they also just fought a, a ton of first amendment battles. I mean, one of their first times that they wound up in court was because they had an advertisement for, um, this is back when a, pre Roe v. Wade. Um, and they had an advertisement for a service that would help women in Phoenix go out to California to get abortion. And that was illegal under Arizona's um, anti-abortion law. And so they went to court over that. Um, they just, you know, they time after time, they they went to court to stick up for free speech. They um, fought Sheriff Joe Arpaio when, you know, they had published some things about him and he he had them arrested. And they ended up winning a, a huge settlement after, after fighting him in court about that. And um, um, you know, they ch channeled that into a um, a fund that like supports immigrant get out the vote things in in Arizona. So um, you know they've they've been sort of both challenging authority and it, challenging authority in their papers and in court for several decades, which I think really helps explain you know why when when the government when the government came to Craigslist and said you've got to stop running adult ads, Craigslist eventually was like yeah okay you know we're just going to do that. When when they came to the um, Michael Lacey and Jim Larkin and the heads of Backpage and said, you got to do it. They were like, no, we know our First Amendment rights. We've been fighting for our First Amendment rights for decades. We're going to keep doing this because it's legal. And, and you know, so that's that's sort of been their thing all along. And as you mentioned, you know, they founded they founded Backpage in order to sort of fund their uh, continue funding in their journalism once Craigslist took over and made, you know, print classified ads not as profitable anymore. Yeah. Bob, can you talk a little bit about the significance of classified ads to the kind of newspaper ecosystem. I think a lot of folks who uh, might be of a younger generation, maybe even my generation, don't quite understand what classified ads in a newspaper are and how sure. they over time migrated online. Uh, well, sure, just starting with the bigger picture for the economics of the newspaper business uh, overall. I mean, certainly subscribers pay a fee for the newspaper, but that doesn't come close to um, providing the economic backbone for the business. It's always come through advertising and classified ads are those ads at the back of the paper you see, you know, for cars for sale or various uh, uh, different categories, um, employment ads and so on. And those have always been the lifeblood of 
print newspapers in the United States. The alternative weeklies that were the background that Lacey and Larkin came up through were the ones who would not just provide an alternative take on the news and challenge authority, but they would also carry categories of classified ads that the mainstream newspapers largely would not. So talking about the time, the time when New Times was founded in the 70s, they would have ads for things like head shops. They would have ads for abortion services back before uh, Roe versus Wade, where you find out about services in, in, other, um, in other states. Uh, they would also have adult ads for massage parlors, for strip clubs, for things like that. And so that was sort of the background of advertising in general, and then advertising in the alternative weekly world. And then that moved over to the internet once classified ads and the revenue from them started being eaten up by free services online, starting with Craigslist. So the ads that were housed on Backpage or, or sometimes posted on Backpage or sometimes posted on the back page of the print edition of, of New well, Times. That came specifically from the Village Voice. And for that uh, group of alternative weeklies that Lacey and Larkin ultimately owned, the flagship was, ultimately, they purchased the Village Voice, the longtime New York alternative uh, uh, news weekly. And uh, in at the Village Voice, they called their classified ad section because it started on the back page, the back page. And so that where is where the name came from for the online version of the backpage.com website. So presumably the automotive services, uh, maybe even the head shop uh, information, uh, some of this, some of the classified ads that appeared there were non-controversial, but the kind of crux of the case against backpage involves uh, adult services, massages, um, escort services. Right. Right. And, and the one thing that, um, has led to sort of the political campaign against Backpage and against a lot of the misunderstanding about it is that when you have ads for adult services, keep in mind that the majority of those services are legal services. They don't include advertisements for illegal sex for money transactions. And this is something that Judge Richard Posner in one of the cases that Ronnie and I handled for Backpage, pointed out. And just because something is for an adult service doesn't mean you're talking about an illegal adult service. And he went through a list of the kinds of things, the kinds of ads you see on Backpage. For example, escort services, which are licensed in most states. Uh, advertising for those services is, is entirely legal. Um, strip clubs, massage services, things like that. Um, and it is only uh, in those categories where you actually have people out there breaking the law that the advertisements can be uh, can be classified as beyond the pale. So the, it, what it really comes down to is prostitution, right, Ronnie? So you know, if ad so the escort services. Correct me if I'm wrong. This isn't really my world. Advertise what is theoretically just an escort, someone who goes around with you places, spend time, spends time with you, but doesn't on its face, although it's often kind of suggested or implied, involve payment for sex, right? Which would fall under the definition of prostitution, right? So what they're coming after Backpage for is the allegation that these ads are actually for prostitution, which uh, in most states is illegal, and therefore arguing what? That it's speech integral to criminal conduct? 
Ronnie? How, how should we think about that? Well, I mean, the, the theory of the government's case when they finally got, I'm jumping forward just a little bit here, but to answer your question also, the theory of the government's case and of many of Backpage's critics was, you know, you can tell from these ads just by looking at them that they're for illegal prostitution, right? But the actual truth of it is you, in fact, cannot. You, in fact, probably could not pick out an ad that ultimately turned out to be for an illegal sex transaction once the uh, the advertised person and the customer or the person who responded to the ad would, you know, meet up and decide, you know, how they were going to go about the, their interaction. And an ad where, like you say, it was just, you know, strictly for keeping someone company. And, you know, don't forget also that there are legal adult ads for things like, um, you know, people who come to bachelor and bachelorette parties who provide a First Amendment service that is put on uh, a show that in, doesn't involve prostitution or sex for money in any way, shape or form. Uh, that also would fall into the category of, um, of adult ads. So the idea was, yeah, that's, you know, like it was almost like what you just said, where there's this subtext of, yeah, but we all know what they're really for, but you don't. And when the government tries to, you know, put a halt to something like that or to criminally punish it or whatever it is, the burden is on them. They don't get to say, well, you know, if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck and it swims like a duck, then that's close enough for government work. In the First Amendment sphere, that's absolutely untrue. Yeah. And let me me add just a thought to that. And that is the complaints against any of the classified ad website, websites, it's including Craigslist and not just Backpage, were that they facilitated not just prostitution, but also child sex trafficking. And that's the part of the allegation that is absolutely false. Uh, to begin with, Backpage had a track record of cooperating with law enforcement whenever they uh, came across information about possible trafficking, of reporting it. They also would Um, respond to subpoenas within 24 hours. They would send uh, people to testify at trafficking trials around the country on the company dime. Um, And so they were probably one of the better sources, if not the best source online for combating child sex trafficking. Uh, The other argument was that they facilitated not trafficking, but prostitution. And again, for the reasons that Ronnie was describing, the assumptions being made that you can simply tell uh, that an ad is for someone who's wanting to perform an underlying illegal act is something that the government doesn't just get to assume. Um, The um, trafficking allegations, interesting, while they formed most of the political reaction and a lot of the political reaction to Backpage, um, the government didn't even try to bring a trafficking case against Backpage because they knew they had no case in that area. And yet, when we talk about the trial, part of the misconduct by the government during the trial was even though they didn't charge Backpage and his former owners uh, with child sex trafficking, they kept trying to introduce to taint the jury um, with the thought that somehow this involved child sex trafficking. Oh, can I jump in? Um, yeah, I just wanted to, to, to add one thing to Ronnie's point too. I mean, there's a whole host of services that people might not realize are legal that are like 
dominatrix services, sensual massage, things that actually could involve getting with another person and, and engaging in um, some sort of, you know, erotic activity or some sort of nudity or things like that without actually explicitly, you know, engaging in direct sex acts for money. And those are, are um, legal too and much harder to tell apart from, you know, prostitution based just on an ad. Um, and then to, to Bob's point, I just wanted to say, you know, there were there were these memos that um, that were turned over by the prosecution accidentally to back to the back page defendants during the trial. And they wanted to use them in, in their defense, but they were they were told they weren't allowed to because the prosecutors only accidentally gave them to them. But these these memos were written by federal prosecutors back in, in 2011 through 2013. And that was when they had started looking into could they make a sex trafficking, a child sex trafficking case against the, the folks at Backpage. And, and they did extensive interviews. They went through all sorts of documents. They interviewed all sorts of employees. They, they did all this stuff. And, and what they came away saying was like, we thought we'd go in, you know, seeing open admissions for them allowing child sex trafficking for profit, even though they, they knew that's what the ads were for. And instead, we found that they were very, you know, that they were very much trying to stop that. Instead, we found that they were very much trying to, to help out with prosecutions and things like that. So you have federal prosecutors um, sort of directly contradicting in their private memos that were never supposed to get out the message that you had the Department of Justice and politicians putting forward publicly. Yeah, and, and the prosecutors did not want those memos to see the light of day. Uh, as Elizabeth pointed out, they were done during an earlier investigation of Backpage, where they found both that Backpage cooperated with the government, had been commended by the FBI in its efforts to prevent trafficking. And the other thing is, they said, contrary to what many people believe, you can't tell from the face of an ad whether or not it is for criminal activity. And you can't assume that when it's published on a third party website like this, that they had any knowledge of it. Um, and yet that's what the entire prosecution was based on, saying that you can tell just by looking at it. Now. <laughs> this has been a rocky prosecution from the beginning, going after the former owners long after they had sold the company and ver then various other officers and, and workers at, at Backpage. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons for the first mistrial was that three days into the testimony, not only did the government persist in trying to put on all of this tainted testimony uh, about child sex trafficking, trafficking that had nothing to do with the prosecution. Um, they also um, made the very argument they had debunked in those memos that Elizabeth pointed out. They, they basically said, you can tell just by looking at these ads that they're for illegal activity. And then the publishers had to know by looking at these ads. And even though their first witness basically said, you can't tell. <laughs> their law enforcement expert. Their law enforcement expert. And so it, it was a clown show from the beginning. The, the sad part is it's a clown show that had lethal consequences for uh, Jim Larkin, uh, who snapped ultimately under the pressure of the prosecution. And for those people who uh, had findings that they had violated certain laws that still have to deal with that. We can talk about the weird verdict that came in later, but uh, uh, still the, the consequences here in destroying people's lives, destroying a business are, are uh, very significant. So I, wanna, I do wanna bring up, before we kind of get into the principles 
at stake in this case and why First Amendment advocates or advocates for an open internet should care about it. Kind of the objection that when my producer and I were looking into this uh, figured most prominently in our minds, which uh, there was the allegation that Backpage helped some of these advertisers tweak their content so it didn't explicitly advocate or, or advertise, I should say, prostitution. Um, found a note here that in October 2010, operations manager Andrew Padilla is alleged to have sent an email to a large number of Backpage employees containing instructions on how to moderate advertisements, including a spreadsheet of keywords indicating prostitution that needed to be stripped from the ads before they could be posted. Um, it's alleged that there, this was a common practice in, co- in consultation with Backpage's moderation team um, and that federal prosecutors claimed this was evidence that Backpage knew they were facilitating prostitution. What's, what's the response to that? We, we should start by acknowledging that the jury found Andrew Padilla not guilty on all 51 charges for which he, he was charged. And what you had were moderation policies which said ads cannot appear on our platform that make the following, um, uh, the following allegations. Uh, the idea that um, uh, uh, the moderation practices were intended to conceal wh- what the government said was prostitution flies in the face of their argument that regardless of what changes were made, we know that these ads are for prostitution. Um, the uh, uh, moderation policies were to let people know that you cannot advertise using these terms on Backpage. Yeah, I think a lot of the the arguments when it, they, people talk about that um, sort of misunderstand the way content moderation works. And you see this them now making these same arguments, the government making these same arguments against all the mainstream social media sites um, that have like age limits. But, you know, they'll complain about Backpage and, and now about these other sites like, oh, well, they say you have to be 18. And then if someone creates an ad and says that they're 17 and they'll tell you, no, you have to be 18, then they're just allowed to create one that says you're 18. And you're like, well, I mean, you know, they they can't just ban anyone from like, they're not telling them that because they want them to secretly code it as they're actually 18. And that's what they sort of make it seem like. Or they'll say, oh, they told them, you know, they weren't allowed to use these prostitution words. That must mean they're coaching them to secretly conceal their prostitution. But that's also exactly what you do if you didn't want people to be advertising prostitution on your website. So it's a sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't thing. Because, you know, if obviously if they'd explicitly let people post on there, like, I'm advertising prostitution, that would be illegal. But then if they told people, no, we don't let you say these words that are indicative of prostitution on our website, then the government says, oh, well, the fact that you're telling them not to advertise prostitution also means that, you know, that you're... It, you know, uh, in cahoots with them, advertising prostitution. It's just, you know, it's, they really can't win in that regard, I think. And and it sort of goes to the fundamental way that the content moderation has to work. Unfortunately, you know, like you can't just ban, like, I, I mean, you know, ban someone from advertising forever because they one time tried to post something that had an illegal word in it. And that's the same way. It's not, it's not unique to Backpage that they do that too. I mean, the government itself operates in the same way. Because, for example, under the Children Online Privacy Protection Act, which basically says you can't collect personal information, knowingly collect personal information from those under 13, that's the trigger. If you collect some, something based on someone's you know, age that you know, you've got a whole compliance rationale. And so 
the FTC has said it is permissible in certain circumstances to age gate out anyone who's under 13 because you've got a service that you, you know, want to be able to collect personal information for. And the FTC says, if you age gate and you allow people to put in the date and you don't suggest what the right answer should be, you drop a cookie and so they can't come back and, you know, give another age, give another guess. That is, unless they're smart enough to clear their cookies or just switch to a different browser and proceed on the same website again. And the FTC has said, oh, okay, well, if, if, if the users are doing that, that's not chargeable conduct to the website operator under COPPA, and that won't be a violation. You couldn't operate otherwise. And to say that Backpage was doing something similar, and when they did it, it was impermissible, I think is you know, a bridge too far, to say the least. Well, and, and here, I think understanding a little bit about the legal context for publishing third-party speech uh, would be in order. I mean, obviously, in most states, prostitution as an activity is a crime. Uh, Nevada is an exception. Um, but the act of engaging in prostitution is against the law in most jurisdictions. The question of whether or not carrying an ad for prostitution uh, is then the creates the First Amendment question. Are you publishing something that is for a service that is against the law? And here, what is required under the First Amendment is specific knowledge of what you're dealing with. You have to both know and intend that what you have accepted for publication violates the law. Here, in the back page prosecution, they were cha- uh, uh, charging both the former owners and certain of the executives of Backpage for knowledge of prostitution ads they had never seen. There were millions upon millions of ads, and the prosecution here listed 40 of them um, and basically said, you are responsible for knowing these existed and knowing what they were proposing, even though they were ads that none of the defendants had ever seen. And so the First Amendment implications of holding people criminally responsible for someone else's speech and someone else's acts, whether or not those acts were criminal or not, uh, raises profound First Amendment questions, particularly for a medium where much of what you see online is third-party speech, speech that a platform is going to host that someone else has posted. One of the things, too, that, that is kind of weird and, and you know, double talk in this case from, from politicians and prosecutors is that, you know, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children gave Backpage a list and, and pressured them to say, we really wish you would ban all of these terms. We think that they're indicative of, of prostitution or child sex trafficking. This was a huge list. It was like 100 and plus words. And some of them were things like um, like young or teen, but like, you know, you can be 18 or 19 and still be a teenager and still advertise that. Also, lots of sex workers who are a little bit older than that say that they're that age, you know, because like it or not, that that is, you know, maybe an effective marketing technique. Um, People will say they're young if they're, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean they're underage. So there were all these words like that, um, that, that, you know, they pressured Backpage into not allowing on their website and, and, you know, trying to, trying to comply with them. You know, the, the moderators at one point said like, okay, we won't, you know, we won't allow those words if you think that those words are bad. And then, so therefore they would not allow words. They would strip those words from ads or they would, you know, tell people they couldn't post their words with those ads. And then when they did that, you had the government say, oh my gosh, they're, um, you know, they're allowing ads that they knew were for child sex trafficking. And it was like, it was never the moderators and it was never the Backpage executives saying, we know that these are words for child sex trafficking. It was them saying, fine, we'll accept your sort of overly broad speech squelching, um, you know, 
uh, idea of this just just to like you know be overly cautious and then banning those words and then the government yelling at them for you know banning those words so it was again sort of a bait and switch and it's a constant arms race right i mean you've gotten you've you've cleared your spam filter occasionally you've seen what the subject lines of spam look like with you know dollar signs instead of s's and misspellings and whatever else and so you develop a list and you take let's say you start with the nick mick list of 150 and you you know either explicitly or implicitly indicate what terms are not permitted well, those who want to circumvent your protections will then try something else. And so you have to add that to this. And this was a constantly growing list of things that Backpage tried to block. And the government would turn around and say, well, look how big the list is. You know, surely that must indicate to you that there's a big problem here. You, you see this in other contexts, too. For example, in China, where you have the Great Firewall and you can't criticize Xi Jinping, they refer to him as Winnie the Pooh, right? Exactly. To try and get around the... the the filters, and you see this on TikTok. Speaking of, and now they ban references to the clue, yeah, yeah, and you see this on TikTok all the time, where like sex will be spelled with the X as a dollar sign or something to try and avoid the content filters that exist there. So it's always that the content moderators are trying to catch up with the creativity of the content creators, and it's and it's just impossible. One of the things that strikes me about this case is how collaborative Backpage was with law enforcement. And I think I read somewhere, Elizabeth, in your piece about how law enforcement would say, no, we can't go after Backpage because they're very collaborative with us and they help us get these sex traffickers and, oh, and they implement, you know, credit card requirements for these these ads. So it makes it e- them easier to track. While at the same time, acknowledging that if Backpage leaves, there might be, there will likely be other places that these advertisers will go and you might have platforms or publishers, perhaps out of the United States, that will be less willing to kind of play ball on the illegal underlying conduct. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's like fundamentally misunderstood or misrepresented is the idea that like, I mean, no one no one is really arguing that no, nothing terrible ever was advertised on Backpage. I mean, you, you couldn't know if someone actually was underage. You couldn't know if someone actually was being forced or coerced into prostitution or or any sort of sex work, into, into legal sex work. You know, people are coerced into stripping and things like that, too. Um, but yes, in cases where that was known, they, they did help out. And, and so I think, the, you know, the, the, the political argument was always like, oh, if we just take these ads off Backpage, not only will there not be new sites that, you know, crop up to take their place, but this stuff will stop happening. And that's just, you know, a really insane thing to think. Like, obviously, the bad stuff is still happening, even if you can't see it on this one particular site. And it is going to migrate to sites that are going to be less, you know, responsive to government requests, less willing to help out. So exactly as you said. That, that is exactly what happened. Um, the advertising that got closed down on Backpage immediately popped up on a lot of other sites, including foreign sites. Uh, you did have some of the more honest law enforcement agencies acknowledging that they were now no longer able to effectively investigate instances of child sex trafficking because they no longer had the cooperation of a site like Backpage. Uh, occasionally you would see those kinds of acknowledging acknowledgements pop up in news accounts, but <laughs> sadly, more rarely than it actually happened. And one of the only places where you could find full reporting of this whole issue was at Reason and through Elizabeth's pieces that she wrote for Reason. So I want to turn now, you know, we're, th- we're 30 minutes into this to talk about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which was a big defense, I'm assuming, 
of Backpage. And so I'm wondering, maybe Ronnie, if you can explain what Section 230 is and how it protected or should have protected the you know editorial rights of or the, the you know kind of existence and, and third party content that existed on the platform. Yeah, so Section 230 that you refer to is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. It's uh, codified in Section 230 of the Federal Communications Act. It was adopted as part of the 96 Telecom Act when the internet was really getting revved up and becoming a thing. Um, And basically what it says is if you are an online uh, computer service, i.e. websites and now apps and and, uh, social media, um, first, there's two parts of it. The first part is um, you you can't be treated as the publisher of any content that is of a third party, right? So if you didn't um, create or contribute to uh, content, then you have immunity from liability, unless of course you contributed to in some way, shape or form what made it unlawful. Even if you do some editing or do some moderating, but you don't change it in a way that it contributes to the unlawfulness or the, uh, or the, the uh, legality, you don't have liability. Second, there is a, a, an immunity from if you choose to take things down or not platform things, you have an immunity against being told that you had some kind of obligation to put it back up or to carry it. So that's Section 230. And Section 230, um, putting aside the federal criminal trial of Backpage for a minute, because it actually you know, didn't have application there, because Section 230 gives you immunity from basically all civil liability or at least originally, all civil liability and all state liability, criminal or civil. So when the uh, state AGs, for example, would try and go after Backpage with civil investigative demands or state legislators would pass new laws targeting online advertising uh, worded in a way that, oddly enough, really only captured the kinds of thing Backpage were doing, uh, courts routinely struck them down both on constitutional grounds but also on grounds that they're preempted by Section 230. When people who claim to have been trafficked on Backpage tried to bring civil claims against Backpage for contributing to the harm that they suffered, those claims were also uh, routinely held to be preempted by Section 230. Now, the funny thing is, the no, funny is not the right word, probably, but the, the odd thing is Section 230 has never applied to federal criminal liability. And for years, uh, law enforcement and politicians um, would say, oh, We've got to do something about Section 230. It's letting Backpage skate. It's enabling all of this trafficking. Um, and so that you had ultimately the passage of um, FOSTA and SESTA, which were two pieces of legislation that carved out from the state immunity and the civil immunity uh, trafficking offenses and lawsuits for trafficking. And so almost concurrently with the indictment being brought against Backpage and the government seizing the company and the servers and everything else, you had the signing ceremony for Sesta and Foster for this great legislation that was finally going to let them go after Backpage. But that was a myth. I mean, it was never needed in the first place. And as, as Bob and Elizabeth have already described, the counts in the, in the indictment were solely about federal facilitating prostitution crimes and money laundering in connection with those crimes, which the government could have brought at any time. So not only did the government use Backpage as kind of a punching bag for this sex trafficking, alleged sex trafficking problem. They also used it to get 
the camel's nose under the tent to amend Section 230. And now on Capitol Hill, you hear ideas for amending Section 230 left and right to deal with the you know so-called social media problem. Did Was there a similar protection for these publishers prior to the internet? Like when Village Voice was just publishing classified ads, was there like a Section 230 for the analog age or did it because it required more to actually publish them in the pre-internet age. It, it did require more to actually publish them, and and you had uh, the possibility of publisher's liability, but you had to have specific knowledge, right? And in the internet context, because you have the ability to publish third-party speech before you have a chance to review it, that's why Section 230 was necessary as a way of immunizing platforms that would never take a chance on allowing third-party speech where they have millions of posts and can't review them um, if they are going to be held responsible either in criminal law or civil law for what other people post on their platform. Yeah, that volume problem is um, one of the reasons that Jeff Kossoff in his book on Section 230 titles it the 26 words that created the internet. I mean, given the volume of posting that happens on the internet, you could not have social media if you did not have Section 230. Uh, one of the biggest misunderstandings about Section 230 is that it protects a lot of speech that you know, otherwise maybe wouldn't be protected by the First Amendment. And it's simply not true. Like a lot of these cases that turn on Section 230, if they, you know, if you they fought them out in court, they would ultimately, the, the companies would ultimately prevail on First Amendment grounds. It's just that Section 230 stops them from having to fight out this really long, prolonged trial in court because they could always say in summary judgment almost like, no, you know, Section 230 is going to prevent this. So, so Backpage, Craigslist, social media companies wouldn't have to fight these huge court battles over, over every sort of user-generated content. So it was sort of like a shortcut to protect people. Yeah. Right. And by the way, if the if the speech was un, unprotected or otherwise, you know, legitimately a source of liability, the fact that you give 230 immunity to uh, interactive computer services doesn't mean that there isn't someone that you can hold liable or charge for the unlawful speech. It's the speaker. It's not the thir- it's not the publishing platform that allows them to publish. I mean, there were two models, I think, that when, you know, when, when the Internet, you know, first started becoming um a part of you know, mo- you know common modern day life. Um, there are two models, right? So we have a line of cases that's like bookstores, right? And we don't charge um, the owners of bookstores for shelving a book that has defamatory content or obscene content unless you can show knowledge of what's actually in the books. And that's really hard because a book, most bookstores, especially if they're dealing in volume, they're not looking inside of every single book that they shelve. The other model would be like the newspaper model, right? Where even if you publish an ad like Heed, Heed Their Rising Voices that contains falsehoods, if you can get over the hurdle of the constitutional protections uh, for libel and defamation, the newspaper could be liable along with the people who placed the ad. And so the question was, which model are we going to use for the internet? And I often envision kind of an alternate history where you never adopt Section 230, and we have decades of you know battles in case law, where you eventually get to the bookstore model because of the problem of scale and scope on the internet. Section 230 just allowed us to get there that much more quickly and allowed online business and, on, and online uh, commerce to happen much sooner than it otherwise would have. Because you wouldn't have sites like Amazon or Yelp or anywhere where third-party content would be permitted if the service had to review every piece before it went up on pain of being liable for it, or alternatively, if they did, what they allowed up would be so much more constrained 
than what they would allow when they knew that they had immunity if they didn't contribute to the problems that the content presents. Yeah, I don't know what I would do for Christmas if I didn't have Amazon. So I'm very thankful <laughs> for Section 230. Um, I've got three more kind of topics that I want to touch on quickly before we close up. One of them, I think I read in your piece, Elizabeth, your profile from 2018, uh, is a quote, banks received increasingly stern warnings from federal financial regulators about doing business with sexually oriented enterprise, part of a program called Operation Chokepoint. Major institutions like Chase suddenly terminated their relationships with Backpage and many others, from porn performers to condom companies. Uh, Bob, this sort of thing is before the Supreme Court this tor- term, right? That's pretty much NRA v. Vula. Well, yeah, I mean, there, or in there's, many that, ways. there's that kind of jawboning in the First Amendment context where you have the government going to businesses, supporting businesses and saying, you really don't want to do business with these people because they engage in bad speech. Okay, so that kind of issue is is really significant. And it's also something that has been part of the history of this case from from the beginning. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Ronnie and I handled the case against Sheriff Dart, where he simply leaned on the credit card companies and said, you guys don't want to do business with Backpage. They're very bad. And that's where uh, the uh, Seventh Circuit uh shut that down rather quickly, saying that the First Amendment prohibits that kind of leaning on a particular business. But here's a weird way in which the phenomenon that you've discussed plays into the odd verdict that came out of uh, uh, the trial in, in, in Phoenix. And that is, there was that kind of direct pressure on financial institutions generally, but on Lacey and Larkin's personal bankers they would have FBI agents visiting their banks, banks which Lacey and Larkin had had lifetime relationships with. And they would tell the bankers, you really don't want to be doing business with these guys. Uh, and, and as a result, they were essentially being debanked uh, by uh, various institutions. And what's, uh, again, it it's hard to 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 say that it's funny in this context, but the one charge on which the jury returned a verdict against uh, Mike Lacey was in, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Nico, uh, international concealment of money laundering. Now, here's, here's what underlay that. As I said, they were trying to, they were putting pressure on domestic banks not to do business with them. And so uh, uh, Mike Lacey, uh, transferred some money to a foreign bank, fully reported it to the IRS on um, the financial, the required financial forms. The jury de- um, declared that he was not guilty of money laundering, and yet the one charge on which they found him guilty was concealment of money laundering. Now, if there's no underlying crime, mon- money laundering is known as banking. <laughs> Right. It's simply not a crime. So the jury's finding is completely inconsistent with its other finding of no money laundering. Uh, And it's also a product of the government's illegal campaign to 
shut down their access to domestic banks. That's what's so crazy about so many of the money laundering charges that they that they have in this in the prosecution of Backpage is that a lot of them are, are predicated on on things that they had to do because of the government's pressure on banks. Like when Sheriff Dart, the case they represented, you know, got the credit card companies to stop doing business with them while well, they encouraged people to use Bitcoin or checks to pay for ads. Then the government used that as evidence of money laundering in their case. You know, they moved their money they because they were trying to evade. Yeah, exactly. And and um and and a thing that we've reported on too is that at reason a lot is that like this isn't just happening to to Backpage this this is happening to all sorts of sex workers but it's also not just happening to sex workers I mean you have them exerting the same pressure on people who sell um, guns or ammunition and things like that you have the same sort of um, you know playbook that they that they went through with, with sex workers and Backpage going on with all sorts of any any industry basically that is sort of disfavored by by people in power can can have this happen to them. Yeah, the thing that's interesting to me, and maybe this is because I'm not a lawyer, uh, and I'm not as familiar with criminal proceedings as I am with maybe civil, given the nature of fire's work. Uh, law enforcement came in and seized all of their assets, right? Right. Even going so far as to kind of like seize the home of someone who uh, either Larkin or Lacey had like lent money to to help buy the home. Right. Like some like grandma or something. So I, I don't know, like they at that point, they hadn't been convicted of any crime. That's right. And then all their assets are seized. And now they can't put up a robust defense because they don't have their assets to defend themselves of, yep. against the charge that they haven't been convicted of yet. So, like, how does this it just boggles my mind? I know it's I've heard about this in other contexts. I know the courts have said that law enforcement can do this, but I just don't understand how this isn't punishment before conviction. Right. Well, it is. And, and the asset seizure was part of the case that I worked on. Um, and it is more vile than even you, uh, you have described it. When Lacey and Larkin were arrested, uh, there were SWAT teams and federal agents coming in and with instructions to seize anything of value they could find. Um, evidence of wealth. Yeah. Any, any evidence of wealth, artworks off the walls, anything like that. Um, the origin of that uh, federal authority came with the RICO statutes that were designed in the 1960s to fight organized crime. But the issue is really something that was designed to go after, like if you find, you know, uh, money from drug sales or, wep you know, illegal weapon sales or things like that. What you're talking about here are proceeds of a publishing enterprise. And there is abundant case law that um, when you're talking about seizing publishing products or the proceeds of publishing products, that uh, those are protected by the First Amendment. You don't get to assume your conclusion. You don't get to assume guilt and uh, basically impose the punishment beforehand. But what was particularly evil about this approach is that the government's approach was designed specifically to deprive the defendants of a defense and to deprive them of the ability to defend themselves because they didn't just seize their assets. They went after the trust accounts that the defendants law firms had and made it impossible for them to pay lawyers. And so you had a much more difficult ability by the defendants to mount any kind of defense, which makes the verdict that the, the, the government got from this case after its first mistrial um, all the more um, puny and almost laughable 
in terms of all the counts they loaded on to begin with. And don't forget, you know, Larkin and Lacey were involved in the alt weeklies for decades before Backpage. And they made a nice living doing it. I mean, they made money. I mean, they were ultimately able to buy the fabled Village Voice and bring it within the stable of the alt weeklies. And clearly, none of those uh, funds and none of the things that those funds bought were anyway connected to the Backpage website that the government was seizing and bringing criminal charges on. And they seized all of those assets as well. I mean, you know, it's funny. We've got some folks currently, if you want, if you want to, you know, think about how you know terrifying this model could be, we've got some folks currently up on Capitol Hill, not far from here, saber rattling against, you know, newspapers, you know, did you provide material support to terrorism, right? If DOJ gets in its mind that it's got enough evidence to show that one of these newspapers uh, and you know provided material support to terrorists, there's nothing stopping them from using the same playbook to go in and seize the proverbial and probably the literal printing presses and then say, okay, now we're going to put you on trial for providing material support. And only if and when you can get acquitted, will you get any of your stuff back? Yeah. Yeah. The other thing too, is they seized the website on the day of the arrests and basically deconstructed it. And in the process made it impossible for the defendants to put together the information about all the cooperation they had been um, uh, providing and the ways in which moderation actually worked. Yeah. And dismantling a website is a pure prior restraint, right? And if you have a prior restraint to the extent that they're lawful at all, you're supposed to have, you know, rapid appeal with the government bearing the burden of proof. And here we are, how many years later, just getting to a verdict that is a mixed and quite frankly, in my view, a pretty skimpy verdict in the face of the indictment. Yeah. So let's talk now. Let's close up here by talking about the verdict. We already talked a little bit about the international concealment, money laundering, uh, charges and convictions. Uh, there was also convictions for some of the staff or executives uh, surrounding uh, the Travel Act, which I'm not too familiar with, not sure what that means, uh, and then the facilitation of prostitution. So I'd love to hear from all of you, you three, um, kind of an open-ended question about what your first blush of the verdicts last month were and kind of where we go from here. Maybe we'll start with uh, you, Elizabeth. Um, you know, uh, I think that there's still a lot of yeah miscarriage of justice happening in the verdicts. Um, Lacey was found, like we've said, guilty on one count. He was found not guilty on one count. And the jury couldn't agree on the other 84 counts. So that does leave open the possibility that the government could try him again for a third time on these same charges. And we should say that um, Lacey here, too, despite being found guilty of that one count, uh, international concealment, money laundering, um, could spend the rest of his life in jail because I think it can carry yes. a maximum sentence of 20 years. Yeah. And I he's in his seventies. So yeah, that definitely. Um, and, and, you know, the, the two of the defendants um, were found guilty on, on multiple charges of, of money laundering and, and um, other, uh, one of them on uh, facilitation of prostitution. Um, and then two of the defendants were found entirely not guilty. So um, that was good. But the, you know, all, all the other things, I think all the other guilty charges, I think are, are pretty, you know, unwarranted, but also just to be a little bit positive. Well, I don't know if you'd call this positive or not, but um, I think the fact that they, you know, were able to prove so few of their charges and get so few convictions relative to what they, you know, tried to bring. There were like over a hundred or a hundred counts um, in this indictment 
really shows the sort of bankruptcy of, of the government's case. I mean, the fact that they charged all these things that they have, they've pulled out, like we said, every sort of dirty trick in their book over the years, um, you know, including the, the asset forfeiture and everything, and that they were still not able to get the conviction they wanted really, really tells us something. I, I agree with her point that this shows the poverty of the government's case and its inability to actually uh, make the case on these hundred counts that they brought back in May uh, uh, tw- uh, 2018. And for Mike Lacey in particular, after a first mistrial, now to have a mistrial on 83 counts uh, of all the entire substance of their claim against him, uh, a not guilty verdict on money laundering, and the only thing in which they got a, a finding of guilt from the jury is this, quote, international concealment of money laundering, which raises the question, if the money laundering didn't happen in the first place, according to the jury, how do you have concealment for a transaction that you fully reported to the IRS? On the others, uh, the employees, Joy Vaud and Andrew Padilla, uh, they were found not guilty on all 51 counts on which they were charged. And I should say that those employees were both offered a sweetheart deal from the government to walk away entirely if they would turn state's evidence. And in particular, Joy Vaught said, I will not lie for you uh, and Mm. turn down that sweetheart deal that the government had offered her. uh, And the jury uh, saw the government's tactic for what it was and uh, found that uh, both those employees were not guilty. For the other two, uh, the chief financial officer, Jed Brunst, Uh, He was found guilty on one count of conspiracy and 30 counts of money laundering, but no accounts under the Travel Act. And I'll I'll get to your premise question here in a second. (laughs) And that's where the Vice President Scott Spear was found guilty on 18 counts under the Travel Act and one count of conspiracy and then also uh, a number of counts on money laundering. Now, the Travel Act was something passed back in... uh, 1959 or 1960, as it also refers to the Mann Act, where you're talking about transporting women across state lines for immoral purposes. Uh, And but the Travel Act is something that can be used to bring federal charges against interstate crimes, even if they're in support of certain specified state crimes. So if you're facilitating those crimes and you travel across state lines, hence the name Travel Act, Uh, then uh, you can be found uh, guilty under that federal provision. Now, as Ronnie mentioned earlier, uh, the federal government could have brought charges against Backpage whenever, since, you know, Section 230 doesn't immunize um, uh, anyone under federal criminal law, but for a variety of reasons, including the fact that this earlier investigation that Liz reported on and then the government did its memos on, they concluded they really didn't have a case. Uh, it was only in 2018, finally, after uh, Backpage and its executives had won a string of First Amendment victories, the political pressure to bring some kind of uh, action to crush them simply got too great. And that led to the series of events that led to this prosecution. I just have to say a lot of people assume like, oh, well, maybe then they they ultimately, you know, they weren't doing the bad things back in the day, but then they did things bad in 2016 or 17 or 18. And that's why the charges were brought. But a lot of this conduct that they're referring to took place 
um, you know, before those early memos were written or, you know, in the early days of Backpage. So it's not as if like, Absolutely. oh, they just got new evidence that, that made them bring it eventually. Absolutely right. Yeah, no, I'll just, I just, I just should add that, you know, you mentioned the sweetheart deal uh, that she turned down to turn state's evidence. But this whole case was built on the president of Backpage turning state's evidence. I and mean, what happened was Lacey and Larkin sold out to the current the president who ultimately turned state's evidence. And so, you know, he was given a great deal to testify on behalf of the government. Um, he essentially allowed them to seize the servers and seize the and seize the uh, the the apparatus of the company. And yet even with that help, they got the paucity of uh, convictions that they got in this most recent trial. Yeah. And just one one thing to add, and that is we haven't heard the end of this story. There are uh, pending motions for judgment, notwithstanding uh, the jury's verdict, uh, and particularly where you have conflicting findings from the jurors saying there was no money laundering, but <laughs> there is inter international concealment. Um, you know, I think that uh, those are strong motions. And uh, I think uh, all of the defendants that had convictions um have uh, motions pending that uh, we'll see what happens. Well, and there's also all the evidentiary rulings pre-trial that could be grounds for appeal. That's right. A big picture thing that I think is important to remember too, for especially, you know, for fire audiences is that, you know, I think a lot of this was done because the government and prosecutors knew that this would be a good test case. Because if you say it's about prostitution, or especially if you say it's about sex trafficking, people are just going to say, eh, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm not going to defend it. I'm not going to look too closely at it, whatever. And it was a sort of test case. Can we can we use this sort of prosecution? Can we use this sort of political pressure to either you know amend Section 230 or go after other sorts of online companies that allow user-generated speech and, and sort of, you know, can, can, can we get away with this? And and I think that, you know, we're seeing now that they've, they've already moved on to doing this against companies that have nothing to do with sex because they were they were able to perfect this playbook or at least test it out with, with Backpage. I'm not too familiar with criminal proceedings. Bob, when you reference motions and Ronnie, when you reference appeals, uh, like is there a possibility that some of these conv convictions could be overturned? Yes, it is possible. Um, I think, as I say, I think there are strong arguments for it. It's up to the trial court judge. But then once that decision is made, um, it will um, then, of course, be subject to appeal to the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. One thing I should say about this current trial judge is that so many of the pretrial rulings uh, were so biased toward the prosecution. It's amazing that there were so so few convictions under these counts as there were. So, for example, the defense lawyers were not permitted to basically mention the First Amendment and not were permitted to um, uh, tell the jury about the many First Amendment victories that Backpage had won in arguing why they were not liable for uh, criminal uh, violating criminal law for this speech. So I appreciate all of you coming on unpacking this case that Bob, as you mentioned, some, or Elizabeth, excuse me, as you mentioned, some people might have voided because of the underlying allegations. It clearly has important implications for free speech, the First Amendment, the right of publishers, and a free and open internet. Um, I would urge folks who, who want to learn more about this case and, and see some color surrounding kind of the media discussion we had to read Elizabeth's 2018 profile. 
of the of both Larkin and Lacey and Backpage in general. And in the meantime, we will stay tuned and see how these motions and appeals play out and be sure to update our listeners uh, as the case progresses. Again, a reminder today, we were joined by uh, Elizabeth Nolan Brown. Elizabeth is a senior editor at Reason Magazine and has, as you heard, a new newsletter coming out. So you'll want to subscribe to that. Elizabeth, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Bob Cornrevere, Ronnie London. Bob, of course, fires chief counsel and Ronnie, our general counsel. Bob, Ronnie, thank you both again for coming on the show. Thank you, Nico. Always fun. This podcast is hosted by me, Nico Perino, and produced by Sam Niederholzer and myself. It's edited by my colleagues, Aaron Reese and Ella Ross. Learn more about So To Speak by subscribing to our YouTube channel, where you can also watch a video of this conversation. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for the handle Free Speech Talk. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. And you can also send us email feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. And if you have a thought for our guests today, I will be sure to forward those along to them. If you enjoyed this episode, please, please, please consider leaving a review. Uh, wherever you listen to your podcast, reviews are the best way to help attract new listeners to the show through the various podcast platforms, recommendation algorithms. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.